Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ta for Ta, Women, Success, China is powered by the Seneca Network. We are bi-weekly podcasts focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SubChina, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo, Jason McRonald for ending, and Jamie Louie for marketing. We have a really exciting opportunity that we want to share with you all. So for the first 50 listeners that leave a review on iTunes, they'll be entered for a drawing of a free one-year membership to the China Institute. So this one-year individual membership includes complimentary admission to select programs, including arts and culture, business, fashion, food, film, unlimited complimentary admission to China Institute's gallery, a 25% off discount on all gallery publications, a discount at Jiangnan Chinese Cuisine Restaurant with the valid membership card, a discount on admission for fee-based programs, and a discount on tuition for classes at the School of Chinese Studies. There is a lot included in that, and we will be giving that out to one of our listeners that leaves a review, and we'll be doing a drawing once we hit those 50 reviews. So you're hearing me right, get listening to the episode, click write a review in the Apple Podcast app, and be sure to share your email in the review so we can track you down if you win the drawing. This week we are joined by Jenny Gao, founder and CEO of Fly Beijing. She is a chef, entrepreneur, and globally renowned expert on Chinese cuisine, on a mission to bring uncensored Chinese flavors to the table. She has this uncanny knack for flavor and understanding what we want, even if we didn't know it existed. After the episode, I tried her company's Mala Spice Mix with my own creative spin. And as you will see in her conversation, she wants to bring her products for experimentation and novel ways of using them, not necessarily confining to the original, traditional sense of the ingredients. This forward-thinking mindset and her incessant drive for quality really stood out to me as her recipe for success. Let's listen in. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ta for Ta. I'm Juliana, and I am joined today by Jenny Gao, who is the CEO and founder of Fly Beijing. We're so excited to have you on the show today. And, you know, I think it'd be great if we could just start, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and almost a highlights reel of your career and what is taking your time right now, what's consuming your time right now. Yeah. So thank you for having me. It's really fun to be here. And um, I was born in Chengdu, but had a kind of crazy childhood. I was growing up, moving around once a year uh, to eight different countries um, all across Europe and Canada. Um, and uh, I you know, grew up mostly in Canada, went to business school there, started my career at P&G in brand management. 
Um, and then I had an exchange semester when I was in business school at Tsinghua. And I just fell in love with the energy of Beijing mm. at the time. And it was right around the time of the Olympics. And, um, you know, when I was working at P&G, all I could think about was getting back to China. And so I eventually found a way to move to Asia through um, a job at BlackBerry. So I actually uh, changed into tech and um, moved to Asia and, you know, in Beijing, Singapore, and uh, my job kind of took me all around Asia Pacific, which was really amazing. Um, but what I really just realized being in China in my 20s was how disconnected I had become from my cultural identity and, um, you know, having moved around so much and, you know, speaking different languages and kind of code switching and adapting to my environment, it um, really made me sort of lose a connection to mm. to who I was. And so being in China reminded me of that. And, um, and interestingly, food became one of the ways that I was able to reconnect with that. Um, I initially started helping a friend out with her company doing food tours in Beijing. Um, and just really, you know, discovering more about the complexity of Chinese food culture, and just um, really astounded by how little I knew about it and how, how little we in the West know about this um, incredible, you know, 5,000 year heritage. And I became obsessed with kind of sharing it with, um, with a broader audience. So I actually started writing and um, just kind of doing this in my spare time, writing uh, about Chinese food culture on my blog, eventually writing for Western publications and food and travel. Um, it, and then that led to me, you know, doing some television work with celebrity chefs when they would come to China. Um, eventually that, um, you know, one door opened after another. And, and um, after you know, a few years, I think six or seven years being in Asia, working in tech in my day job and doing this on the side, I decided to just kind of take the dive and, and uh, commit myself fully to whatever it was that I was doing in, in Chinese food. I hadn't quite figured it out at that point. But that, you know, some, some time off of work was, uh, it was really it just, you know, opened up the whole world to me. And, and uh, eventually I met a business partner and we actually opened a restaurant in Shanghai. Mm. And that, um, it was called Baoism. And the idea came from kind of seeing a gap in the market for uh, a fast casual concept that was modern and Chinese. Was there an experience that impacted you when you were you know, going to the farms, did you meet with people? Did, was there something that was really surprising about, I don't know, either that the farming practices were a lot more uh, comprehensive than you're expecting or something along those lines? Yeah, I mean, I think the surprising thing was just how much of a barrier there was to achieving these organic accreditations and, and how little maybe those labels actually meant because um, larger companies could actually pay for that and pay to upkeep that. Um, whereas kind of smaller mom and pop farms who couldn't afford it, you know, uh, their their products were, you know, 
maybe overlooked or, you know, uh, people didn't necessarily realize the reason why some of these products might be more expensive mm. um, than, you know, what we're used to in, in wet markets and such. Um, and so as a result, I think it is difficult for farms who are really trying to produce better products because the you know the expense of getting it to their customers let's say in the cities where they can maybe afford these prices the difficulty of of that is is so much higher part of our mission was to really make that easier for some of these smaller scale producers mm-hmm. yeah so that you know that project took us over 2 years to build and eventually we um we opened in Shintendi in Shanghai and you know it gained a lot of press very quickly internationally locally uh won a bunch of awards um, what did that feel like to just get that sort of media traction because sometimes i feel like people search for so long to get that media traction they might actually have a really great idea a really novel idea and sometimes i just feel like there's things that where it just clicks mm-hmm. um and it seems like that was a situation where people really just were excited about it and it kind of like yeah. snowballed. I think it was definitely like a right time and a right place. And it was a very personal story, which people connected to of our mission as kind of, in my case, you know, being a Chinese Canadian and, you know, Chinese American, um, I think, you know, wanting to go back to our, you know, home country and do something that has a positive impact. Um, I think that resonated with a lot of people. And, and that's probably why the story kind of, you know, took off. But, you know, in that process, you know, it was an amazing experience. I learned a ton, but I also realized that I didn't really, you know, operating restaurants didn't really fit kind of who I was. I loved the storytelling and the brand creation and the product creation behind this project. But um, I wanted to kind of explore how to um, reach an even wider audience and, and uh, you know, not be confined by like the physicality of a restaurant space. Mm -hmm. So um, eventually I left that project behind um, and moved to Chengdu where I was kind of looking for my next step. And in Chengdu, I studied with um, an amazing chef called Yu Bo and, you know, just kind of soaked up his wisdom. And, you know, he's one of the most esteemed Sichuan chefs in Mm -hmm. the world um, and just there's been a lot written about him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So just, you know, being around him and his wife and just listening to their stories and um, looking through his library of, you know, old texts on Sichuan cookery. I just kind of soaked that all up and wanted to figure out how how what can I contribute to the evolution of Sichuan food? Because, you know, Sichuan cuisine, just like most cuisines in the world, is a constantly evolving thing. If a cuisine doesn't evolve, it dies, right? So there's kind of no sense in holding on to tradition mm-hmm. um, because, you know, traditions have to evolve for it to continue. And mm-hmm. so I was looking for um, what I could do. And um, eventually, I just, you know, I started experimenting. I started cooking. Um, I went back to Shanghai and I started a underground supper club called Fly by Jing. And uh, the fly part was really inspired by my favorite aspect of Sichuan's food culture, which is the fly restaurants in Chengdu. 
Um, these are hole in the wall mom and pop run shops that are usually, you know, hidden, hard to find. Uh, they do no marketing. Um, but so it's more of like a characterization of a type of restaurant in the same way you'd have like a fast food chain. It's these are fly restaurants or type of restaurant. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, and people refer to them as such. So okay. in Chengdu, people call these uh, mom and pop shops fly restaurants because they're so delicious that they draw people like flies. Mm. So it's kind of a cheeky um, way for Chengdu people to kind of poke fun at themselves. Mm. And um, these restaurants are just an incredible part of Sichuan's daily life i think you know everybody has their favorite fly restaurants everyone in chengdu is a diehard foodie like that's just the baseline the search for flavor trumps everything else it trumps like you know the atmosphere of a place you know nobody really cares that you're sitting on the sidewalk mm-hmm. on these like plastic stools stool. and, you know yeah so what i love about um fly restaurants is that it's such an equalizer you know you see ferraris parked next to bicycles everyone's just there for this common goal of like having these amazing flavors and um it's almost like the equivalent of american diner in a sense where you could you've people from all day di- it's really about the food true. it's less about the atmosphere yeah it's people from all walks of life come there for the experience and the, the community. community. Exactly. And so the energy of a fly restaurant was what I really wanted to capture in my in my cooking and in the events that I um, eventually um, had all, you know, in Shanghai and all over the world. So, um, so that's kind of how Fly by Jing was born. It was really to um, celebrate Sichuan's flavor profiles because a lot of people, I think – have this misconception that Sichuan food is just spicy and just numbing. And, um, you know, I think in the West, a lot of Sichuan restaurants have uh, kind of played into that caricature a little bit. And so it's all about just like crazy amounts of spice and chilies mm. and, and Sichuan pepper. And um, which really, if you are in Chengdu, it's a very different story. Like, Flavors are super subtle and super complex. Um, there are dozens and dozens of flavor profiles that Sichuan chefs are known to be able to create. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of them, you know, never really get popularized in the West. I guess I want to dig into that a bit more. And what do you mean by uncensored Chinese flavors? Well, yeah, I think one of the ways that we describe Fly by Jing is we hear about authentic flavors a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, you know, everyone has their own idea of what uh, authentic Sichuan or authentic, you know, Chinese flavors mean, because it's a very personal thing, right? Like you have an idea of what that is because of an experience that you had, whether it was your grandmother cooking for you or a trip to China that you made, you know. So, um, but it's kind of a term that doesn't actually mean anything concrete. Um, and, you know, like I was saying earlier, cuisines are constantly evolving. You know, for uh, for the last 200 years, Sichuan food has become quite associated with spice. But prior to that, chili peppers didn't even exist in Sichuan. Mm. You know, that came in through uh, trade through South America, actually. What we think of as traditional Sichuan cuisine today didn't even, you know, exist Um just over 200 years ago. So um, this just kind of proves that um, authenticity is a term that is very um, fluid 
And, uh, you know, so when we, we, we try to avoid using terms like that to describe what we do and our flavors. Um, because when you look at, um, a product like Sichuan Chili Crisp, for example, which is our best selling product, it is, it doesn't taste like anything in the West, but it also doesn't taste like anything in Sichuan either. Like when my family, and, you know, my relatives have it. They're like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> this tastes different. And the reason for that is because we are, I believe in rooting our flavors in tradition, like in the traditional techniques and flavor profiles, but using novel ingredient combinations and adapting my personal experience of having been all over the world to the product. So it actually doesn't taste like anything even in China. Mm. So yeah, so for us, I think what we want to do is like bring something new to the table and evoke something new, which is why we call it uncensored. That makes a lot of sense and really helpful, I think, just in terms of explaining your philosophy around things. I think, you know, you pointed out, and I'm I'm noticing the more that I speak to you, is that you really are a storyteller. And it seems like you did extensive research to really marry the cultures and from lots of different places, not just, you know, Western and Chinese cooking. Who did you speak to? How did you go about speaking to people? It seems like you'd started with this chef that you were apprenticing and shadowing with in Chengdu. But, um, you know, who else? What other, like, if you were to take one of your products and say, here's some of the experiences that that came from it, whether it be the Sichuan Chili Crisp or something else. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, what what what? Where did the influences come from? Yeah, you know? well, I think um, at the core of it is the ingredients. So I spent many years, starting from my Baoism days, um, and you know, through to uh, my days of doing pop ups, you know, with Fly Beijing. I spent many years searching for the best quality ingredients because, you know, China is such a vast country. There are you know, and with 5,000 years of culinary history alone, there are just so many incredible sources of ingredients that have been cultivated over the years. And the reason why we don't hear about them in the West is because China is such a massive market. The best quality ingredients get snatched up immediately. There are people who are very much in the know, chefs and, you know, um, just culinary aficionados who, you know, are are very much on top of these things. And, and if we don't even know about that in the West. Um, and not only that, we kind of have these um, biases towards Chinese cuisine, then of course, this stuff is never going to make its way here. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I found. Because um, I, I discovered, you know, for every ingredient, there is like a huge scale of quality, you know, you get the stuff that is widely available on the market. And then you have the stuff that is so high in demand that it literally used to be given only as a tribute to the emperor. So, um, for example, our citron pepper that we use is a result of driving hours into the countryside from Chengdu to build those relationships with the farmers who are handpicking the citron peppers from the trees on a hill that was exclusively meant for the emperor in previous, you know, generations. And so that is truly a transformational ingredient that when you smell it, taste it, it's like it's like a whole new paradigm, you know? Um and you 
could never kind of go back mm-hmm. <laughs> to using the stuff that's available on the mass market. So um, ingredients like that that are really just eye-opening that actually have never been included in products that are widely available. This is kind of what makes our products unique, I think. It really starts with the ingredients. And then I think, you know, it's about also the use cases. So um, we, you know, when we um, talk about our products, we don't tell our customers here, like, you have to cook a Chinese meal with this. This is authentic. This is better than anything else. And, you know, this is um, this is exactly how you use it. We don't prescribe that. I think it's more interesting for our customers to kind of find their own way to use these products and incorporate it into their existing routines. Mm-hmm. Um, the same way with so many other spices, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm using sitar or some other spice, it's I'm going to use it in a very different way. It totally. just maybe something that's a simple meal that you're yeah. just putting it on top of some vegetables and, and seeing how that tastes. So I think that's really interesting because I was also going to ask you, you know, you probably have customers that know about some elements of the products and therefore have sought it out. It's also probably an element of discovery. Mm-hmm. And it's probably in your best interest as, as a company also to, to get more people to understand how to use the products and kind of how do you see your customers in terms of this balance of people that are seeking out traditional products and then people that are discovering and and having these new revelations of different flavor profiles that they're excited about or maybe never had before. That also inspires me. It's like when I see people are using it in, you know, ways that I never would have expected, mm. you know, and um, that is kind of the the core of what we're doing. I think in bringing something to the market that, you know, personally has so much meaning to me, it's like so rooted in, in my, in my cultural identity, but also is like myself um, has adapted to like a modern and broader audience. It's just, it's, it's, that's the, the most rewarding part, I think. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask about, I think there's the whole element of the storytelling and the communications and getting the product out there. But there also seems like there was a lot of work on the back end, just setting up the foundations of building a supply chain in China. And I think a lot of the listeners to this podcast would just be interested and you've written a lot about it. What were some of the biggest challenges and obstacles of setting up a supply chain in China? What sort of advice would you give to someone that is trying to do that for an F&B company? Um, yeah. So when I first started the sauce company, I it, it was a natural evolution from the pop-ups that I was doing. I was actually making these products for my dinners. And I just kind of realized like this, this is a perfect kind of flavor base that is also shelf stable. I can put it into jars. I can sell it. Um so I initially was just making it out of my kitchen. Mm-hmm. And um, eventually when, you know, I, I thought this idea could actually have legs because this was kind of the solution of getting these incredible flavors to a wider audience and uh, to to really scale that. And so I, um, I didn't know where to start because I obviously had no experience in manufacturing. But I thought, you know, if there was any place where you could figure it out with zero background in this whatsoever. <laughs> it was China. Um, so I started by just looking at products that were 
available on the market. So I went to every grocery store, picked up every jar of sauce I could find. Um, in China, they require you to list the name of the manufacturer on every single product, mm. which is something we don't require here in the U.S., but yeah, yeah, in China, true. they are. And so started there, just contacting every single factory that I could to figure out, you know, what are the <clears throat> minimum order quantities? What are some of the costs involved? What you know, what does it take? I had no idea at all. And uh, just from multiple phone calls, visits to factories, I started to piece things together. Um, what would you look for on the visits to factories? Were you looking at like cleanliness? Were you looking at like processes? When you would visit, what would well, you I think, look at? Well, I think it was also culture. I think, okay. you know, you want to find the right partners to work with. And so if, you know, if a factory was very dismissive, you know, like, who are you? We are very happy with our, you know, current client base of like, hot pot chains across China. And like, we don't really care about, you know, this uh, small business that you might bring us. Or yeah, if it was like super transactional, you know, that would be another red flag. Um, I wanted to find a partner that I could trust. And obviously, yeah, cleanliness, I'd seen everything from super state of the art, like, amazing technologies to you know literally in a in a shack in mm. a farm um and uh yeah so it, it definitely varied widely i think in sichuan alone there are just you know tens of thousands of um sauce factories and so i uh, talked to many of them and also you know just learning things along the way like how do you um export these products to the US? How how does a product get FDA certified? Um, because I knew from the beginning that I wanted to be able to, you know, reach a more global audience. Um, and so it was important for me that we were able to export it. And so I was told by many factories that they could and have exported to the US. Mm. And then later found out that they actually didn't have the required documentation, um, that they, you know, were you made false promises um, of being able to do it, but it was really through like, you know, underground channels. And so a lot of lessons learned along the way. And eventually I was able to find a partner who I really felt like I trusted, like not only were their um, facilities and their, and their equipment um, just really, really, you know, state of the art and, 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 um, and modern, they, they also had a very kind of, modern company culture and uh i felt like there was a good fit there mm. yeah and you actually got really hands-on in those early days <laughs> yeah yeah i mean because the thing is um you know the the sauce that i developed it's not really based on any traditional recipes so this product doesn't actually exist um in citron we've seen we have oil-based chili sauces in China, which is kind of the preferred type of hot sauce, um, as opposed to the vinegar-based um, blended sauces that we have here. But um, there's just like how there's <clears throat> um, thousands of kinds of hot sauces in America that are vinegar-based, you know, from Cholula to Frank's to, you know, um, Tabasco. Tabasco, there are just as many types of oil-based chili sauces in China. And so it's not just one, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I think... I, I remember being in the, the grocery aisle when I was living in China, in Gaoming, and it was like a whole aisle. Yeah. It was just loud. Yeah, and I was like, oh my God. I, yeah. 
I didn't even know that there were this many brands. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, so there's so many different types of chilies, you know, in uh, in Xinjiang and in Guizhou and in Sichuan. They they're they all have different types of chilies that that the locals like to use. Um, and in Sichuan, I think um, they're maybe uh, one of the most sophisticated because they. They breed chilies based on like their fragrance, their heat level, their um, their color, and mm. so th- so there's really an art to kind of blending different chilies. And you know the recipe was my own, and I developed it over time, just a lot of kind of tinkering and experimenting. And so when I brought this to the factory, you know they had no prior processes in place for doing something like this. They had the machinery that I needed. But um, there was it was a lot of kind of um, like trial and error in the beginning to to be able to scale up the recipes that I was doing in like my wok in my kitchen to like a large steel drum that could fit, you know, half a ton of oil in it. So, yeah, I think because they had not worked with the ingredients that I'd worked with, they had not, you know, created any sauces with the same techniques they looked to me a lot for guidance. And that was really scary because I didn't know mm-hmm. the least bit about, you know, mass manufacturing of, of a product. Um, so I think it was, you know, mutual trust and um, a lot of, a lot of um, experimentation that eventually led us to the current product. Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. And I feel like it was a very long process to yeah it to was get it was over a year for That's sure yeah when when we had sort of figured out the the process and the recipe then it came down to the cost of manufacturing such a huge batch and i i was you know using my the last of my savings at that point after having you know quit my job a few years prior mm-hmm. and um would you say you felt more vulnerable in your career at the point where you decided to quit or this point where funds were running low and it was kind of this like point where okay it's either gonna really work out or I don't know it was definitely the latter it was you know when I first quit my job I had a good you know amount saved up and I was not concerned and after a few years of entrepreneurship you know when that savings starts to dwindle it's uh it's really scary Mm -hmm. um and but, you know, I did have a strong conviction in the product and what I was doing because of my time, you know, you know, cooking these pop-ups in cities all over the world and just seeing people's eyes like widen and their faces light up when they taste, you know, the the, the flavors um, and realizing what they had been missing and realizing just that they um, they had no access to these ingredients and flavors, you mm-hmm. know. And so I knew that there was something there. I had a lot of conviction in the product itself. I think it was definitely the Kickstarter that enabled me to, you know, take that first step. Yeah, I mean, I hope my numbers are right, but it seems like you guys exceeded your goal by 350% and you had 1,600 plus people yeah, sign up yeah. for that Kickstarter. We had actually over... I think over 2,500, it was, you know, okay, over even Kickstarter <laughs> and Indiegogo. Yeah. So the reason why I did that was, um, I, I visited, uh, Expo West in 2018, which is, um, a big food trade show in Anaheim, California every year. Um, it's the largest natural foods trade show in, I think in the world. And, um, 
super overwhelming. It's like four or five days. And, uh, you know, there's thousands of vendors that are all kind of displaying their latest, um, you know, innovative and nutritional, like, you know, food products, right? And so this is arguably the future of healthy eating in America. All the buyers of like Whole Foods and, you know, all these natural stores mm-hmm. are, are walking the halls. I was just kind of seeing what the state of the food industry was like in the U.S. And so I visited Walk the Halls. And after three, four days, my biggest kind of takeaway was that there was a serious lack of more diverse products, specifically Asian, I could probably count on one hand the number of brands that were, you know, selling kind of all natural premium um, Asian flavors. And I felt like that was a kind of serious disconnect between, you know, from a disconnect from what was, you know, a reflection of what this country actually looks like, right? You know, we have more and more people are embracing Asian culture and uh, Chinese food, is also one of the most popular cuisines in America. There's over 50,000 restaurants here. And yet, not only is there kind of a misunderstanding of what Chinese food is, there's also um, a lot of conscious and unconscious biases towards Chinese food, right? Mm -hmm. It kind of ranks at the bottom of the hierarchy of taste. And so that is our willingness to place value and, and pay for the cuisine. So at the same time, you know, in 2018, we've never been more you know, embracing of different cultures in this country and more, you know, interested in diversity and flavor and especially when it comes to our food. And the fact that nothing existed that was available on the market for um, just better for you, high quality versions of those flavors that we love, that was kind of a um, kind of a glaring to me. Mm. So that gave me enough um you know, impetus to do the Kickstarter campaign and um, kind of see whether this had a market. Yeah. And then just in terms of timeline, did the Kickstarter campaign come around the time when your personal funds were running out and it was like, okay, I'm going to source from you know, well, yeah, other people. I, yeah, yeah, was yeah. that because it was gonna it came? was gonna cost like over um, over fifty thousand dollars to right. produce a big batch, and so um, you know instead of asking, you know, friends and family for investment, I was like, you know what, let's just see if this idea even has legs. That must have felt really great to feel validated because I can so tell your conviction is really strong in the product. But then to see, okay, wow, over 2,500 people Mm. also want the product and Mm. they're putting real money down like that must have felt really validating. Yeah, for sure. Um, And, you know, I... I had commission on the product because people who tried it and I had been, you know, selling it and, and, and serving it at my events for over a year by that point. And people who tried it, you know, really loved it. And so, um, it was more kind of testing whether some, an idea like this could really work in the U.S. And so the fact that, you know, 2000 plus people, you know, bought into it before even trying the product showed me that there was really, um, a hunger for, you know, for for high quality, like people were kind of sick of these old paradigms and wanted something that um, like there was no reason that Chinese food had to be, you know, cheap and unhealthy, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and in fact, you know, people demanded something better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
so that yeah that was that was definitely very validating and um that allowed us to produce our first large batch and uh, kind of set the wheels in motion for me to uh leave my you know my life behind in Shanghai and move to LA to launch the business right and so where's the company at now kind of fast forwarding a bit yeah so we actually just hit our first year anniversary congrats thank you so um it's been a roller coaster of a year yeah. it's definitely not been easy um not every step of the way has been a huge challenge but i feel like we're um we're really just getting past the the early growing pains now and we're poised for growth which is amazing um you know starting from when the products were shipped over to the us um, you know, we had issues with the bottles at first, you know, with the lids not fitting correctly. What and, happened there? Uh, it was just the, you know, the manufacturer of the, of the jars, you know, didn't produce the, like there was some errors with some of the lids. And so, you know, we experienced, uh, leakages and, um, issues with the ceiling even before we started shipping, you know, mm-hmm. so that was, that was a, a, a first kind of hurdle. And then mm-hmm. I might ask you to say that because wasn't there also a funny part of it where you like went around and tried to find all these different lids and then they're like, oh yeah, we can actually oh, do yeah. <laughs> you don't mind if you don't mind telling that part as well. Yeah. So um so this was back in the manufacturing days. You know, I, I had selected a jar that I wanted to use. I t- the factory that I was working with one of the staff there said it needs to be the lid needs to be two and a one eighth inches, like mm-hmm. something very specific. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, that's weird. Um, okay, let me go check. And not a single bottle manufacturer had, you know, um, the had a jar with the, the lid or the, the mouth of it being that size. And, um, after kind of this wild, like chase i came back and was like okay we i don't have that she was like well and then she gave me like two other super like just esoteric like sizes and i was like okay um it was just like a lot of back and forth then i finally was like okay tell me more about why this is that you need you know (laughs) the list to be exactly that size and um eventually it came out that that was like the size like so i think she was being told one thing by by the the manufacturing team and she didn't actually know the full story so she like what it was was that the machine can seal a jar of any size but they only seal jars of this one size in the past right and so when uh, so there's a lot of like kind of game of telephone. And so, but without knowing like the full picture, she just was adamant on telling me just one thing. And so it took a lot of digging. And can I speak to <laughs> the person who's in charge of sealing? And where it finally became clear that I, I could actually use any size jar right. I wanted. Um, anyway, so that was like a whole, that took Saga. like several <laughs> weeks to, to solve. Yeah, and then and then when it came to the labels, there was also a lot of issues because um, a lot of printers in China did not even know what like Pantone colors were, mm. and I had very specific goals with the colors of the the jar and like you know the um, there was a lot of 
printers that just told me this this is good enough, right? Like just kind of showing me their interpretation of the color that I wanted. But um, you know, I was very adamant on on getting the exact results, and mm-hmm. so eventually I had to find a printer in Hong Kong instead of China because they were the only ones that would kind of take the time to interesting. Yeah. 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 Now that you focus so much on the storytelling and the manufacturing, it seems like distribution and getting your product to the right places is probably a focus at this point. Would that be a correct assumption? And, you know, how are you trying to to get your product out to to people that can discover it and and enjoy it? Yeah. When we first shipped out our Kickstarter orders, we worked with a 3PL, like a third-party logistics company, um, which, as a side note, was a whole other nightmare because <laughs> they. Uh, it seems like even in America, <laughs> companies will be very careless. And, you know, so we our first initial shipment, we actually had um, the 3PL send it all out uh, without proper pack, uh, proper protection. And so Ooh. a lot of jars, you know, were damaged for no. our initial customers. So that was like kind of a nightmare um, in the beginning. Yeah. After everything That's that we had gone through, <laughs> finally to have the products be in the US and then have like a shipping company mess everything up right oh my god is um, that like a phone call that you got from the shipping company saying well no it was uh it was a email from the first customer <gasps> who received a bag of broken glass and <laughs> oh. um yeah it was it was really a nightmare it happened over christmas i you know worked all throughout christmas just fielding customer service emails and calls eventually we were able to like reship everything and and fix the problem but it was just like uh, you know, endless. Yeah. 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 Um, but, um, you know, despite that early hurdle, our, our early Kickstarter backers were super supportive. So when we launched our e-commerce website, um, flybedging.com, they were, you know, they, they were just the, the, the initial kind of audience that really spread the word and, you know, told all their family and friends. And they were also, you know, trendsetters in their community. So people look to them for, for that type of thing. And, um, and, uh, the curse kind of became a blessing because in that process of, you know, the customer service nightmare, we actually were in direct communication with our customers on a daily basis. And, you know, some of them commented that we, we provided, you know, some of the best customer service that they had ever uh, received from like an online business, you know? So that was kind of, um, that was really great and showed, showed us the importance of, of like, you know, true customer service. And, um, so since since then, you know, we launched our e-commerce website in February of last year. Um, we've been growing quite steadily. We actually have been growing revenues at 50% month over month. And now we're um, at the stage where uh, we're entering a lot more boutique retail. Um, so we're in over 50 stores across the U.S. now. Um, more and more of our customers are, you know, in the middle of the country rather than the coasts, mm. um, which is great. And so, um, we have a lot of, uh, little boutiques, um, all across the U.S. now. And, uh, we are in talks with larger, um, grocery chains like Whole Foods, um, to, to enter a few of their regions, um, and hopefully by next year to go national. So, um, yeah, so distribution is definitely, one of the key areas of focus as well as brand. Mm. I think, um, you know, we're building these, 
the great thing about um, being digitally native and being online is that we have a direct line of communication to our customers. Um, whereas if you're on shelf, you don't really know who's buying your products. So in this early phase where we have the opportunity to build brand equity, build a relationship, I think we're really taking advantage of that. And, uh, you know, through our newsletters, our social media, our um, all the different content that we're producing, we are strengthening that brand equity so that by the time we do go into stores, um, <clears throat> Customers will know about us and, you know, um, you know, it's, it's retail is a really expensive environment. You have so many more layers that you have to pay for, whether it's merchandisers and distributors and the retailers themselves. And, um, so, you know, as a small bootstrap company, we need to make sure that, you know, we're, um, deploying our resources properly. And at this point, you know, e-commerce is, has been an amazing avenue for us. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. And even just discovery of smaller brands out there has really been fueled, I think, by by e-commerce and mm-hmm. having that accessible. So it's really, ex- I feel like it's a really exciting place that you're at right now. And, you know, we've really covered a lot of the trajectory on the kind of arc of the business so far. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of bringing it back to you, mm-hmm. you know, over the course of this time, was there a piece of advice that um, – you've received that really stuck with you at a certain point during this entire process of building Fly Beijing? I've made friends with a lot of other founders who have early stage businesses like mine. And uh, one of the things that we all kind of agree upon is, you know, in the beginning, it's so important to take the time and the care to actually do, if that's what it takes to do everything yourself. Because, you know, I've learned some painful lessons with, you know, for example, that third party logistics company of what happens when, you know, you just let someone else kind of you know, it, it represent your business because, you know, when they shipped our product to customers without protection, you know, the customer's impression is not bad of that shipping company. It's, it's, it's a reflection of, of us and, brand. and of the brand. And so for quite a long time after that fiasco, you know, I was personally shipping every single product, writing personalized notes to all of our customers. And that goes a really long way. And of course, you can't do that forever. But I think in the beginning, especially when, you know, people are taking a chance on you and your product that you really need to kind of value that and, uh, and deliver the best possible experience. So I think, I think, um, if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. <laughs> it does ring true in this, in this instant. Um, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think that's, that's one of the many pieces of advice that I would give. That's actually really helpful, though. <laughs> One thing left to ask you is, you, where do you want to take Fly Beijing? What do you think is the future? Yeah. So I think, you know, when I first started Fly Beijing, I had no idea what it was going to become. As it continued, as I see the effect that it has on on culture and on, you know, you know, people's taste buds, um, and, uh, the reception that it has received, um, in the U.S., I really, it's, it be, it's become more clear to me that, you know, that what we're doing is actually really important in bridging cultures, um, in a time when there's more and more 
xenophobia, perhaps, and prejudice against people and cultures that we don't understand, um, it's more and more important to uh, do something that extends a hand and, and brings people to to the table. Um, and in this case, it's to share amazing flavors. But um, ultimately, what our ambition is, is to build the next great household name that is a Chinese, that just happens to be a Chinese food product. And, uh, you know, I think sauces and, you know, hot sauces and condiments are just the beginning. I'd love to um, eventually move into snacks and other food products that also have these amazing flavor profiles but are also healthy, that are also good for you. Um, and there's no reason that that shouldn't exist. So um, so we're, you know, I think we're just at the very beginning. And um, I think you'll be seeing a lot more of Fly by Jing. Yeah, looking forward to seeing that evolve and uh, continuing to try and taste all the wonderful things that you're putting out there on the market. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for the time. I think this has been really concretely uh, helpful and interesting, but also at the same time, you're a great storyteller. So I just am really appreciative of the time that you took to, to share with listeners about your experiences. I'm really happy to have shared this and, and thank you for getting the story out. And that's it for today. Make sure to write a review on Apple Podcasts and leave your email in the comment. We're going to be giving away a free one-year membership to the China Institute that you don't want to miss out on. We're also getting more active on Twitter, as you've hopefully seen, providing content that really elevates and supports what you're listening to here. Our Twitter handle is at Ta for Ta. And of course, we still regularly check our email at ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Ta for Ta, Women, Success, China is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks again to Kaiser Kuo for co-producing, Jason McRonald for editing, and Jamie Lue for marketing. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.